Assalamu alaikum everyone. You're listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. On this podcast, I interview academics who self-identify as Muslims and as women on all things Muslim, women, and academia. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please promote diverse content and subscribe to our podcast, share it on social media, and recommend it to your friends and family. Today, I'm speaking to Hara Al-Hassan. She's a research associate at the Center of Islamic Studies at University of Cambridge. She gained her PhD in Middle Eastern Studies from University of Cambridge, and her research interests include nationalist and religious identities in the modern Arabic novel. Assalamu alaikum, Hara. Wa alaikum assalam. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for inviting me. So I know that uh, your book, Women Writing and the Iraqi Ba'athist State, is uh, just released and it examines the contending discourses of resistance and collaboration from 1968 to 2003. And we're going to get to that in a second because I really want to talk about it. I'm so glad I got you when your book is about to be released. But I just wanted to start off with asking you, how did you get into academia? What's your journey into getting your PhD? I don't think that my journey was singular in any way, but I do think it was unique in that I grew up in a family that was really into the humanities. So I didn't have uh, kind of the dilemma that a lot of young ethnic uh, Brits have in terms of being kind of encouraged to get into the sciences or to become lawyers. Um, my dad has a PhD in history and my mum is a translator. So very much were very much part of <laughs> Um, my childhood. So I didn't have that kind of dilemma. The only dilemma I had actually was that I was interested in the humanities in such a broad sense and the education system in, in the UK didn't kind of encourage me to move towards breadth. So at the age of 16, I, you know, I don't know if uh, many people know about this, but um, in the UK, so you have to choose at the age of 16, four subjects to specialize in. So you specialize quite early. Yeah. And I really interested in such a broad range of humanities subjects that it was such a difficult decision for me to choose the exact path I wanted to. So I was really into Middle Eastern um, history. I was into English literature and I was really into French as well. So French culture and history. And then I ended up doing English, but I got special permission from my university to take French courses as part of my English literature degree. And that was, I was very fortunate to get that because a lot of universities wouldn't have accepted that. And oh, wow. that was a trans moment for me because I really that was when I discovered French literary theory in the original so the, I mean it's become quite let's say kind of a bit, a bit dated now post-structuralism and all of the the 70s stuff that came out from France but I really at the time it was it blew my mind it really changed the way I view uh, changed the way that I view uh, literature so mm. from kind of an idealistic uh, kind of view of literature as being the most beautiful the most amazing thing that humans have produced suddenly I began seeing literature as kind of inextricably tied to um, history and to politics and uh, to society. And I think that was really, really important for me. And then what I did was, was that I did the opposite of what people usually do. So people usually start broad and then they start kind of specializing. I actually did the opposite. So I did my master's <laughs> in comparative literature, which was French, Arabic and English literature all together. And I did it um, in a kind of intercollegiate uh, in a way, so I did it at UCL, University College of London, but I did one Arabic literature course at SOAS, which is the university, part of the University of London, but it's the uh, kind of the, the college in the University of London that specializes in um, Middle Eastern studies and African studies as well. So I did my master's dissertation on um, uh, Lebanon and Lebanese and Irish novels, so looking at religious wow. other 
um, in uh, narratives of the civil war in uh, Lebanon and uh, the Irish troubles. So that's so I kind of went from like very specific to kind of broad. That's such an amazing journey to take intellectually speaking, to have that moment of reflection and that sometimes taking that one course often brings up all these other interests that you have. So go on, continue. I'm, I'm like fascinated by this. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> then, so what happened was after that, I mean, I, I only discovered modern Arabic literature properly was, you know, during my master's, which is a shame, you know, because I'm, an you know, of Arab origin, but I had to discover Arabic literature quite late. And then uh, that's it. I was like, I, I want to do Middle Eastern studies. So I decided that I wanted to do, I, I'm, I'm still very much into comparative literature, but it was very difficult to do. I mean, complete in the US is really big, but it's it, at the time it wasn't so big in the UK and it was difficult to do complete using um, looking at studying non-western literature so how could you find a supervisor because you only have one like at the time mm. we only had one supervisor for four years who was a specialist in both um, Arabic literature and another kind of European literature it was too difficult for me to do remember actually I was actually interested in doing a PhD in the US at the time but you know unfortunately that didn't work out but I was really interested in doing it um, in the US because of because of the breadth that you get um, right. on a program and uh, but then I you know I got accepted to do Middle Eastern studies at Cambridge and then yeah and I did it in um, Arabic literature and then I had to again specialize it was specializing was very difficult so I had to choose a specific literary Arab tradition so we have so many Arab countries so you had to really you know choose one specific national literary tradition and I chose Iraq that is a that's a very intellectually good journey to take on where you got to explore so many things before you arrive as opposed to I think uh, some people have a conviction this is what they want to do and that's good for them but I think they miss out a lot on that on that particular journey. Speaking of being Arab, so I lived in Saudi Arabia for 9 years of my life. My parents were expats in Saudi Arabia and my father worked for for the royal hangar like the you know the airplane hangars for for the ro you know royals and he was an engineer there and I had a great time mostly cuz I was a child and it was amazing. Uh, we'd go, we lived in Jeddah. And it was only after I left in retrospect that I realized how things were very, very different from my parents, especially my mother. And I, I didn't see it through her eyes at all when I was a child. I wanted to ask, like, right now you're in Saudi. How has your life in Saudi impacted your uh, work uh, or your work trajectory? Oh, it's had a huge impact on my work, and I never expected it to have such an impact, but it did. So I've been living in Saudi now for the past six years, and as you say, for my children, it's amazing. They've got an extended family. They've got cousins. They're really, really enjoying it. Um, for me, I felt very isolated, and uh, we, obviously, we don't want to perpetuate narratives of what kind, you know, about Arab women and and what kind of women Saudi women are in, in particular. But I did. Right. I mean, I'm lucky that you know, I live in the same town that my parents came from. So, actually, I am supposedly embedded in uh, a community that should be familiar to me. Um, but right. I felt very, very isolated. So, actually, my my book looks at female-female bonding and the kind of bonds that women have together, um, essentially because I found it very difficult to have, to find kind of a network of women that were interested in what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And because the way um, uh, Saudi society is quite segregated, the way that that works is that um, you have kind of 
spheres. So women have kind of certain topics that they will discuss and then men have certain topics that they would discuss. And, you know, if you happen to have interests that only men kind of would discuss, you just don't have a choice. You can't just, you know, walk over and, and go right. into an all-male gathering and discuss um, the, the things that you want to discuss. So I felt very isolated. It took me quite a long time, actually, to find women here that um, have the same interests that I do. And, and I did eventually. And it's been amazing. So I do look at female-female bonding. In fact, in one of my chapters, I look at acknowledgements. So I look at, this is part of my methodology, I don't just look at the text, I look at the paratext. So things that surround the text, the introduction, the titles, the acknowledgements, the prefaces. So I look at the way women have acknowledged, women writers have acknowledged other women and in, the, in their acknowledgements and the prefaces to their works and, yeah. and how that Tributes to kind of uh, creating a kind of a transnational uh, bonding between women. And I look at particularly Shia women um, in Iraq. So, yeah, definitely. I don't think the book would have been what it is today had I not moved to Saudi. I definitely think that. Um, and the interesting thing is, and I told you about my interest in uh, French literary theory, I never got into feminist literary theory. Like, I, ne- I was always <laughs> like, I was like, just because I'm a woman, it doesn't mean I have to talk about women. Why am I being intellectually straightjacketed into talking about women? Just because I am, I can talk about stuff that is, you know, I want to talk about religion, uh, sectarianism, um, you know, nationalism in the novel. This is what I like to do. And then suddenly, uh, you know, and I always thought that, (laughs) yeah, and and when you read the book, the the book is woman centered, but I wouldn't say it was feminist. It's more woman centered. But um, with feminist theory, there's always kind of a they complexify um, identity and that is absolutely valid um, to talk about the historicity of of gender identities but when you live somewhere where identities are treated as such stable entities it seems quite out of place to talk about oh let's challenge the idea of you know a set identity you know identities are fluid that seems quite a luxury and quite a eurocentric luxury actually and that's why i'm you won't find a lot of feminist theory in my book it's it's um yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I, I once read something like that. I, said, I think it was Lela Boulogne. I, I, I could be mistaken about my reference here, but I think she said something along the lines that you cannot place feminist framework in a context where the agents themselves, that's not their motivation to action. If, if you talk to women who live in other parts of the world, they don't particularly describe it. They may describe it in feminist terms and not label it as feminism, but sometimes they don't even describe it in feminist terms. Their motivations are maybe religious-based or nationalist-based or other uh, identity, axis of identity. And so, yeah, I, I, I do get your point about you know, not being particularly feminist in its orientation. But considering that you live in Saudi and you are Saudi, uh, how did you get interested in Iraqi women's literature in particular? That's a really good question. I actually, first I was interested in kind of religious identities in the in the Iraqi novel generally. So my PhD was actually on um, the novels of Saddam Hussein. So I look at literature and propaganda under Saddam Hussein. So my PhD had nothing to do with women. Um, So after that, I began seeing where women fitted in in that Mm -hmm. framework. And the interesting thing that I found is that women were used symbolically in the same way that the novel was used symbolically to signify the nation and women were used in the same way. And then I look at kind of processes of adoption and marginalization. So whenever the state felt like it needed to prove that it was uh, progressive, that it was modern, then it would flag up kind of women as, you know, symbolically in discourse as an example. 
And also, if it wanted to prove that it was cultured, then it would flag up the novel because no other Arab nation has produced state-sponsored novels at, at, the, at the level that um, Iraq did. So in eight years, so during the Iran-Iraq war, at least 75 novels were produced. So much money uh, went into state-sponsored novels. So the state found it very, very important. And I look at why. Why would any government or state feel that the novel was worth investing in at a time of enormous up social and political upheavals and a war and all sorts of things, but they still felt like they needed to prioritize the novel. And there were literary festivals, literary prizes for the novel. And remember, like in the Arab world, we don't do the novel. We have now, but I mean, it, it mainly, you know, Arab literary culture is known for its poetry. Yes. And the novel uh, only emerged through contact with the West and translations actually of, of European novels. So um, there is something to be said about the rise of the novel with Arab nationalism. So that's basically how I got to uh, how I got to uh, women, Iraqi women. So um, my book is kind of divided into two parts. I have the collaboration part, which is looking at, you know, state-sponsored novels and the no novels of Saddam Hussein. That's mm -hmm. my first. And in the second part, I look at resistance uh, narratives. And I didn't mean to kind of put women as always resistive and men as always kind of representatives of the state. But that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> you know, right. there were women who were pro-state, of course, but they didn't do as much writing as, as women who were anti. And I look at kind of what is resistance and are there kind of subtle ways of resisting? And, and I look at kind of religious resistance and I look at secular resistance. And I also, you know, kind of try and problematize this idea of religious and secular but um yeah so that's how I ended up doing Iraqi women's literature. Speaking of resistance what does Ba'ath mean in Arabic and uh, what is the Ba'ath party? Uh, so um, Ba'ath uh, literally means resurrection so it's the Arab nationalist uh, socialist party which was established after the second world war essentially as an anti-imperialist kind of Arab nationalist movement and the they called it the Ba'ath I think is to do with resurrecting the glories of the Arab past and oh. there were two kind of two branches one in Syria and one in Iraq and unfortunately both developed into very very repressive regimes but I mean it's, you try and not treat um, the history of a political party in an essentialist and totalizing way of course it's not it, it wasn't a static history right. So uh, can I ask you a question? Like when you said pan-Arab identity, people generally, at least you, people in the United States, I don't know if it's the same in UK, tend to confuse Arab and Muslim. And so when you say a pan-Arab identity, and that's what the Ba'ath Party had at its forefront of uh, its agenda, does that automatically equate into uh, a Muslim identity, uh, a Muslim Sunni identity, or a Muslim Shia identity? Or is it something broader? Oh, yeah, not at all. So um it's definitely a secular identity that it focuses on. And then what happened was, is that, and I look at this in the book, that in the 80s in particular, the Ba'ath started to, be, to become more Islamic, so more Islamified. So to adopt a few, you know, a bit more of the kind of Islamic iconography in Iraq, it adopted a lot of the Shia iconography just to kind of placate the Shia. But yeah, essentially it was a, um, a secular uh, party that believed in Arab unity. At one point, actually, um, Iraq and Syria became one country. They became the United Arab Republic. Right. Um, but then that didn't last for long. And then it, that, that wasn't that was a failed project. But yeah, definitely Arab and Muslim are completely different. Um, although Islam, I mean, the, the founding father of the Ba'ath Party was actually a Christian. Michelle Athlaq was not a not a Muslim. Right. Um, 
So uh, it wasn't it wasn't Islamic party at all. Um, it started out as uh, secular, and I think it remained secular throughout, even though it adopted at certain stages uh, a lot of kind of Islamic discourses. Yeah. So I know, like, I when I think of Ba'ath Party, I always, I don't know, I mean, as an outsider, as a non-Arab, I always think Saddam Hussein. And, you know, so people don't generally think well of it. How did it lead to opportunity for women writers? So in the 70s, which is known as the years of plenty, there was an eco- econ- economic boom in Iraq. And it really kind of benefited women. So many more women got into the workforce. There was a huge, and this is before Saddam, remember that the Ba'ath Party was not just Saddam, I mean, but I mean, there was an intense uh, anti-illiteracy campaign. So the, the UN gave Saddam in 1982 a prize for eradicating illiteracy among women, basically. Wow. So um, I think that's the most important thing to point out, is that once um, women became literate, that's when we moved on to this new stage of women being able to produce and participate in the intellectual debates that were happening at the time. And had that not happened, um, women wouldn't have been able to to participate in those debates. But that was in the 70s. In the 80s, there's a huge shift. And I look at this shift in the 80s, where women were actually excluded from the production of those novels I was talking about, you know, the state-sponsored novels. They yeah. were all war novels, and women were, women's voices were excluded, excluded because... Uh, those novels were meant to present Iraq as kind of this hyper-masculine nation, and they didn't want the voices of kind of like weak women that had lost their families or had, you know, suffered during the war, because a lot of the suffering, I mean, obviously men and women suffer suffer during right. wars, but women are kind of used to to symbolize the suffering of wars as kind of widows and, and mothers who've lost their children. Um, so their voices were excluded until towards the end of the war, when the when the state was preparing people for peace, that's when kind of feminine voices were allowed to express themselves, but they were also expressed through men. So yeah. it's it's complex. It's quite complex. But um, um, the opportunities that I was talking about were definitely the opportunities in the 70s to study and to learn to read and write. And that's what allowed women uh, to be able to participate in public debates. So what's the tension that your book gets at about the woman question? So I look at women as being a symbolic marker of progress for the Ba'ath Party. And in terms of resistance, I look at how, for example, um, uh, Iraqi Shia novelists used women as kind of a a battlefield. The body of the woman is a battlefield. Um, So if so, and a a way of uh, kind of delivering a a veiled critique of the bath. So if, for example, a character is depicted as being immoral, loose, promiscuous, unveiled, that's not meant to be taken literally. That's kind of meant to be an attack at the bath and its secular values. So what happens is the woman is really transformed into a symbol. And oftentimes you'll find there's a discrepancy between the symbol, you know, the way women are treated symbolically in discourse and their actual rights. So so state discourses will go on about how women are treated differently uh, um, under the bath and how modern and progressive the bath is. But then you will see in laws and all sorts of just in, in all sorts of real ways that women were actually not as privileged or, or, or well treated as it's uh, as the discourses would seem to imply. So I look at that specifically. And how do marginalized voices in particular fit into your analysis? And who who are these marginalized voices specifically that you focus on? Thank you so much. That's a great question. Actually, almost three quarters of the texts that I deal with are marginalized voices um, in the Arab canon. So if you look at um, propaganda novels from the Iran-Iraq war, 
almost no one's ever um, looked at them because uh, people who are interested in history and political science, they don't prioritize literary uh, narratives in their studies. And then at the same time, people who are in interested in literature don't really want to spend their time analyzing novels that are propagandistic. They're actually very difficult to read because of the repetitiveness and the, you know, the bigotry, yeah. and it's quite difficult to read them. So actually, the texts that I look at on the collaboration side fall between the cracks of disciplines. So if someone wants to look at the discourses of, um, of the Ba'ath during a particular war, they're not going to come to the, to the novels of Saddam or to the Iran-Iraq war novels to, to look at that. So in that sense, the collaboration novels are marginalized in the Arab literary canon. But then I look at the, um, on the resistance side, I have two chapters in, on the resistance side. One of the chapters deals with canonical Arab women's writing, which is the secular women's writing, which is autobiographical writing, in which I argue that um, these women are able to resist the homogenization of Arab national identity. So um, they give us different voices um, and that's their way of resisting. And then I look at the novels of Iraqi Shia women and those are properly marginalized. And I look specifically at Bintil Huda. I don't know, uh, not many people know uh, her name, but I mean, she was and still is the most popular Shia woman writer ever in modern history. Wow. Um, young girls, young Shia girls still read her novels. And she was murdered by Saddam in 1980 um, alongside her brother, who was Naitullah, Muhammad Bakr Sadr. So, um, oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I read those novels, actually, when I was around 11. My aunt gave me those novels. She, she, she saw that I was such, you know, really like I was an avid reader. And she's like, OK, you can read these novels because, you know, everyone reads these novels. Um, I don't know about this, this generation. I don't think people read them anymore. But I mean, definitely up until the 90s, women were still reading. And they're still in print, actually, these novels. And yeah, they're very didactic, very instructional, um, very kind of simplistic characters. But I look at how having a religious narrative can be seen as resistive. It depends. You, you have to ask yourself, who are they resisting and what is resistance? So um, if the discourses of the state are secular and um, talk about, for example, women's liberation in certain terms, then talking about women in the home can be seen as a form of resistance. And that's what I look at, that even supposedly reactionary views on women right. can, can be seen as resistive in a certain context. So I look at um, three or four Iraqi women who wrote Islamic novels. Um, and those were like, the, that was my favorite chapter, actually, in the whole book. I got to look that up. I hope there's some translations out there. Uh, that sounds pretty well, fascinating. Unfortunately. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to end with asking uh, an overarching question about the book, which is, what is the alternative narrative of the literary and cultural history of Iraq that your book presents? I think that the story that my book tells is about bottom-up, non-elite discourses on women and the bonds made to challenge the bath. So I, I really look at the networks of resistance that are made through culture. And it's the story of the Iraqi novel that people don't really want to look at. I mean, there has been what I call a voluntary amnesia in Iraqi literary history. People want to forget that these novels existed. If you want to look at your national literary tradition, that's not what you want to really be looking at. But I do think that these discourses are really important because they're being recycled. I mean, Iraq is still in turmoil and, you know, a lot of the kind of 
uh, xenophobic or racist um, uh, discourse or, misog or even misogynistic discourses about women are being recycled. And I think it's very important to, to visit those aspects of our history and literary culture that we don't really like and make us feel uncomfortable. And I think it's very important to do that. And I think that's, I hope that that's what the book does. No, I'm sure. Uh, I'm, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you so much, Haura, uh, for doing this with me. Again, uh, Haura's uh, book, Women Writing in the Iraqi Ba'athist State, Condenting Discourses of Resistance and Collaboration, 1968 to 2003, is out right now and available wherever academic books are available. And I'll put a link on it in our show notes. So uh, definitely, if you're interested in Arab literature and Middle Eastern literature, uh, this would be the book to read. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you so much, Saba. Thank you. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.